privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, but as we do that, before we do that, we're going to pray together and we're going to read through our passage together. We're continuing our series in the book of Judges this morning in Judges chapter 4. Uh, but let's pray uh, as we get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our congregation spread across uh, the county, uh, for those even uh, uh, far away tuning in this morning, Lord, we thank you um, that we can unite our hearts together in Christ, uh, even amid such a crazy situation. Uh, Lord, this morning I think of Isaiah chapter 41, how as you spoke to your ancient people Israel, so you speak to all who are in Christ today, telling us to remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And Lord, we confess and celebrate this morning that you are the one who made us, that we are your servants. We praise you for your promise never to forget us. Lord, we confess some of us feel forgotten in the midst of this. But Lord, you promise never to forget us. And we praise you for the grace of your redemption that you have dealt decisively with our sin through Jesus our Savior. Lord, give us the strength to walk in his grace this morning, all week long, to serve you as we were made to do. Lord, forgive us where we have sinned. Help us to return to you, relying on your redemption. And give us the courage to serve you with joy and creativity during this season. Uh, help us love our neighbors, love our family members, love our, our colleagues, uh, our coworkers, our friends in creative ways, uh, pointing them to Christ. And Lord, we look to you for your protection uh, through this trial, Lord. We think of even those among our own congregation who've been directly impacted. Lord, we, th we pray for Blake and Jane Bottomley this morning that you would be with them as they recover from uh, the COVID virus. We, th we think of Becky Hub's mother and sister who are battling that virus uh, in North Carolina. Lord, it's now to the point where, where we know people this is being affected. Some of them are our friends and our family. Lord, would you reach out in protection amid this crisis? And Lord, we think of those among us who, unrelated to COVID, need your healing hand of touch just the same. We think of Mike Merritt and Chris Page, Pat Killian, Dennis Lorenzen, Sharon Brown, Jamie Keelholtz, John Wright, John Scow, Matt Rosendahl, and others, Lord. And we think of our, our missionaries, our outreach partners who are serving you in, in similar circumstances, Lord, uh, where, where everything has been turned upside down. Would you be with them? We pray specifically for the His Hands Free Clinic this morning. Um, as they adjust their practice and yet continue to serve this community with both medical care and the hope of the gospel. Lord, be with them. Lord, you are on your throne. And for that, we are eternally grateful. So we trust you and praise you. We pray that you'd be with us this morning in our worship, in our singing, our prayers, our giving. And be with us now as we open your word. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to find a Bible, uh, whether uh, in your living room or on an app, and we're going to read together Judges chapter 4. We're continuing our series through this book, and uh, we'll start Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand? Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, uh, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'anamin, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of, to Harosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her and went into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And, she said, and he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, 
took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he lay fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. This is God's word, and it is given to us in love. So uh, it's quite a story, and full confession, I had intended to entitle this week's sermon, Nailed It, but uh, decided that was probably a little bit on the nose. So I went with something a little bit safer and called it, That Was Unexpected which I know is a lot more boring of a title and doesn't quite capture the color of the story, but it does capture the tone of the story. Because this is a story where at every single turn, something happens that we didn't see coming. And, and if we've learned anything the last few weeks, it's that we do not always see what's coming. We cannot predict the future, right? Who among us would have thought given three or, or four weeks ago, that we'd be where we are today? And, and how many among us have any real handle on what the next few weeks have in store? We, we just, we're not in control. We can't see the future or, or, or see what's coming. But that's okay, because in Christ, we know someone who is in control and who can predict the future. In fact, he is sovereign over it. And he promises to be with his people, to accomplish his purposes, even when we don't realize it, and even when he does it in unexpected ways. This is a story uh, where everyone, with the exception really of Deborah, uh, nobody sees what's coming in this story. Though it does start in a very predictable way for the book of Judges. In chapter 4, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We have seen that before, and we are going to see that again and again throughout this book. Israel giving themselves to the gods of foreign nations uh, around them, the, the very nations they were supposed to drive out uh, so that this kind of thing wouldn't happen, but they didn't, and so it does. And the Lord, in his loving discipline, lets them sit in their sin by handing them over to their enemies so that they understand the real weight of their idolatry. And the enemy that we meet in chapter 4 is particularly brutal and, and seemingly indestructible. Uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera, uh, his commander of his army, verse 3 tells us that Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, um, that's a, that's a pretty imposing force. And that he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. 20 years. And, and not just oppression, but he oppressed them cruelly. 
So if you think of anything violent and evil that a, that a dictator or a tyrant might do to an enslaved people, Sisera probably did that. It was ugly. And so the people of Israel cry out to God again. And they, they turn to him for help. And, and when that happens, what you expect to read next is, so the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Uh, but that's not what we see. I mean, that's what we saw in chapter 3 at each time. Israel sinned, they cried out, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. But here, instead of just telling us that, we're given a window into what that process of raising up a judge, or as it were, judges here, what that process looks like. And it's a lot messier than we might expect. For starters, in this story, we meet two judges instead of one. Deborah the prophetess and Barak the warrior. We would expect just to meet Barak. He's the, he's the warrior, right? He's the typical warrior deliverer that we see throughout the rest of the book. That's what all the other judges were like. And, and he seems like the kind of guy, therefore, fit for the job. Based on verse 6, he already appears to have a standing army at his disposal. He is told to gather his men. There's even a sense in which he already knows what he's supposed to do. If you look at how Deborah relays God's instructions to him in verse 6, she says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men. She's asking a rhetorical question. Uh, and while some translations will, will make that a statement, it's a rhetorical question in the original. Deborah assumes that Barak already knows what he's supposed to do. But he's hesitant. He's hesitant to strike out on his own. And even after Deborah reminds him of God's presence and God's promise of victory, he's still hesitant to follow what God has told him to do. And, and we're not even really told why, right? Is he afraid? Uh, um, and I mean, fear almost certainly has to have something to do with it. But fear of what? Is he afraid of his enemies? Is he afraid of... Of the 900 chariots of iron? Is he afraid of failing the people of Israel? You know, it's interesting. Um, chapter 5 uh, gives us another angle on the exact same story. It retells the story in the form of a song of celebration. We're going to look at chapter 5 next week. But the first thing that Deborah celebrates in that song, in verse 2, is that the leaders took the lead in Israel. Taking the lead is risky. Taking the lead is risky. Will I be able to lead them to success? Will people follow? Will God show up? For whatever reason, Barak is not convinced that he will be able to lead the people of Israel successfully against Sisera and his chariots. And so he hesitates. That's easy to hesitate even when you know what you're supposed to do. And, and that's a hesitancy anybody in leadership can identify with, right? You, you, you know what you're supposed to do, but you question whether you'll be able to pull it off. Will people follow? Will, you know, do I even know how to carry it out and so on? Which is, you know, by itself a good reminder to be praying for our leaders today in the midst of this unpredictable situation we find ourselves in. To pray for leaders at every level. At, at national and state and local and in every sector, uh, government, civic, 
uh, educational, business, church, home. Uh, leaders are, are being pressured to make a lot of uh, stressful decisions right now in uncharted territory. So it's always a, a risky role, even in much less critical circumstances than what Barak finds himself in. So there's that temptation to hesitate. But, you know, if you're honest and step back even a little bit further, that temptation is not unique just to leaders, right? Everybody can run into that temptation. In fact, the very next thing we see in the song in chapter 5, that, that what the song celebrates is that the people offered themselves willingly. So it's not just a, a win that the leaders took the lead, but that the people offered themselves willingly. It does no good for the leaders to step up and lead if no one joins them in that cause. And in Christ, we are all called to step up and follow the Lord, to respond to his commands with faith and obedience, even when it looks hard even when it looks hard. That's what Barak needed in this situation. That's what the people needed from him so that they could follow his lead. And so perhaps the first question uh, that we can ask ourselves from this story, what is God calling me to do that I'm hesitating on? What is God calling me to do that I'm hesitating on? And, and I'm not talking about chasing your dreams. I'm talking about keeping his commands, obeying the Lord's commands. Are there areas in my life where instead of stepping out in faith and obedience, I'm holding back and hesitating to do what God has asked me to do? Uh, that's a good question to wrestle with uh, as we look at this story. And so what's needed here? Uh, what will it take for this leader to lead? to take the lead. Uh, what's needed is to recognize that when it comes to carrying out God's commands, that the burden is not ultimately on our shoulders, whether we're leading or following, but it's on the Lord who is present with his people to accomplish his purposes, even in unexpected ways. And, and that brings us to the second major character in our story, uh, to Deborah, the prophetess and the judge. In fact, in terms of human characters, Deborah is really the main character of chapters four and five. God is, as we're going to see, is the ultimate hero of the story. But as far as the human characters, this is a story that revolves around Deborah in so many ways. She's, she's unique in this book uh, in lots of ways. First, she's the only female judge in the book. And, and then second, she's the only judge who brings justice not by taking up the sword as a deliverer, but by speaking God's word to those who take up the sword. Deborah is unique in this book. As one author puts it, she led from wisdom and character rather than sheer might. But she led. She is critical to this story and critical to Israel's deliverance. Uh, in fact, it's her voice and her presence that form the crucial turning points in this story uh, and that answer Barak and, and what he actually needs to be the leader God has called him to be. And so when we first meet her, she is in her home territory, uh, her home uh, region of Ephraim and, and doing her thing as a judge. And the people are actually coming to her, seeking her out, looking for judgment or justice. And so she calls on Barak, uh, our would-be 
uh, man for the job, and she speaks truth to him. That's how she brings justice. She speaks truth. If you look at verse 6 again, she says to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and, and from the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. These are God's words to, to Barak, not Deborah's words. Deborah is a prophet speaking for God here. God is promising Barak the victory. He's promising, he's even telling him, who to recruit, and where to hold the battle at. And he promises to be with him to accomplish his purposes. It's God's presence that makes the difference here. And, and so there, I think, is a, is a second question that we can ask ourselves from this story this morning. Do I believe that in Jesus, God is with me to accomplish all that he calls me to do? Do I believe that in Christ, God is with me to accomplish everything he calls me to do, that there's nothing God commands me to do that he doesn't also supply the strength to do by his presence, by the Holy Spirit. That is the power of God's presence. If I'm hesitating to obey God, it's probably because I've lost sight. It's at least related to the fact that I've lost sight of his presence and his power with me. So am I believing God to be present with me? And yet Barak continues to hesitate. Even after Deborah has spoken truth to him, he continues to hesitate. And so he asks Deborah to go with him uh, into the battle. He says he's not going unless she goes too, which kind of sounds cowardly, right? Um, I mean, that's and may in fact be cowardly. Or it may also simply be his own recognition of his need for the voice and presence of Deborah as an expression or, or even a, an assurance of the voice and presence of God. Uh, Deborah's his prophet. It, it's almost as if um, he's borrowing Deborah's faith where his own is weak. He wants her to be there to continue speaking God's truth to him. And she agrees to go. Uh, she follows Barak to the battlefield, which is remarkably brave. Um, but she also tells him how it's going to end. In verse 9, that the road you are, on which you are going will not lead to your glory, but the Lord will hand Sisera over uh, into the hands of a woman. And, and that, that is an unexpected turn in the story that we're just going to leave hanging there for a little bit. We'll come back to that. But uh, Barak asks Deborah to go. She goes with them. They go to Kadesh. The leaders take the lead in Israel. And the people offer themselves willingly. In verse 10, Barak musters an army of 10,000 men to go against Sisera. And God keeps his word. He draws Sisera out to meet them at the very place where he said he would uh, with all of his 900 armored chariots and all of the men of his army, which means that Barak, even with his 10,000 men, is really outnumbered because 10,000 foot soldiers before 900 armored chariots really doesn't stand a chance. 
And so that brings us to another place in the story where we wonder, uh, what will Barak do? Is he going to hesitate again? He, he, he hesitated before, uh, then he trusted God and obeyed and mustered the army. Is he going to advance and attack? Or will he hesitate? And as you keep reading in the story, you see in verse 15, he does it. He, he advances, he attacks. But notice what gets him there. Look at verse 14, which is really the pivot foot of the entire story. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? Deborah speaks truth once again to Barak, and it's her voice of, of speaking truth and assuring him of God's presence that turns the story, that, that pivots the whole thing and propels or fuels Barak to respond with faith and obedience. It reminds me of a scene in the, the Marvel movie Black Panther. Um, it's one of my favorite of the Marvel comic book movies, but the Black Panther is the king of Wakanda, which is this fictional nation in Africa. And uh, there's a point in the story where his throne has been challenged, and he's dueling the challenger to see who's going to get the throne. And he's honestly getting throttled. And uh, at the moment where it looks like he's about to lose, he catches a glimpse of his mother who shouts to him from the sideline, show him who you are. And as he hears his mother's voice speak truth to him, remind him who he is, he is strengthened to then act like he, uh, who he is as the king and defend his throne and defeat his challenger. That's kind of how I pictured Deborah in this story, on the sideline, speaking truth to the warrior who in light of that truth is empowered to go and accomplish God's victory. Uh, Deborah speaks truth. And, and so there, I think, is maybe a third question that we can ask ourselves from this story. Whose life do I need to speak truth into uh, to remind them who they are what they're called to, and that God is with them. That's what Deborah does in this story. Whose life do I need to speak into? Are there people in my life who are kind of standing there, hesitating before what God's calling them to do, who need to, as it were, borrow our faith, who need our encouragement, who need us to speak the truth of the gospel to them so that they can take their next step with Jesus? Because again, it's God's presence that makes all of the difference in this story. It's God's presence. Deborah's words are only powerful because they point to a powerful truth that the Lord is with his people to accomplish his purposes. And, and you read the story and that's exactly what happens. In verse 15, it's the Lord who routs Sisera and his army. The Lord gets the victory, and he does it in this wonderfully unexpected way. Uh, so if you step back for a moment and think about the battlefield that God chose for this showdown, the River Valley Kishon. That's the, it's the kind of river valley that, that's often called a wadi or a torrent valley. So in other words, it's, it's typically dry unless there's a major storm, and then it fills up and floods really fast. And 
according to the song in chapter 5, that's actually what happens during this battle. Verse 21, he says, the torrent Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. So right in the midst of this battle, God sends a thunderstorm turning this dry ground into a muddy, floody mess. It almost it reminds us, it does remind us of the battle uh, back in Exodus when, when God defeats Pharaoh in his chariots by flooding the ground with water. Their wheels get stuck. What good are 900 armored chariots when the wheels are stuck in the mud? God gets the victory. And so Barak is able to take all of these soldiers and defeat every last one of them with the edge of the sword. Well, almost every last one of them. There is one who got away, and that brings us to the final character uh, in the story and and the final unexpected turn that we encounter uh, with the story of a woman named Jael. So Jael is uh, married to a guy named Haber. Haber, um, despite his roots being connected with the Israelites, he's made an alliance with Jabin, the king of Canaan. And so Sisera, as he flees on foot, uh, having lost that battle, he runs away and he comes to the tent of Jael, uh, where he turns aside to take shelter. I mean, here's a friendly, uh, a friendly face, right? Uh, and Jael takes him in. In fact, she kind of invites him in and, and, and she gives him a blanket and a glass of milk and tucks him in for a nap, right? She tells him not to be afraid, even though she's got to be terrified. I mean, you imagine uh, the friend of one, of one of your spouse's friends showing up in the middle of the night asking if he can hide from the cops in your house. I mean, that's a terrifying thing, right? So she's got to be terrified. And yet she welcomes uh, she welcomes Sisera in, and as he asks her to stand guard, she quietly, after having tucked him in for his nap while he's hiding, sneaks over, and in a really shockingly gruesome scene, in verse 21, Jael takes a tent peg and a hammer and drives the peg through his temple until it goes down into the ground. And then you get the, the three most unnecessary words in the entire Bible. So he died, right? As if that, you know, couldn't have happened, right? This is unexpected. Like, Sisera did not see that coming. The reader doesn't see that coming. And, and neither does Barak. He shows up hunting for Sisera. And Jael turns him aside, brings him in to show him the man that he's been looking for, the man he will not conquer because the Lord delivered him into the hand of a woman instead. And that's, you know, God is with his people to accomplish his purposes in unexpected ways. We see it again and again in this story. A housewife is not the typical hero when it comes to taking out brutal tyrants. Um, but what a rich irony in this story for, for a tyrant who has been so violent to women, as we will learn in chapter 5. Um, this is unexpected, but Deborah saw it coming. Deborah called it prophetically that Barak wouldn't get the glory here. He, he is celebrated as a deliverer. He does defeat the armies of Jabin, but he does not get the glory over Sisera. The Lord hands her over to a woman, uh, which in that day is a particularly uh, brutal uh, and an ironic slam against this dictator, right? And 
Yet at the end of the day, neither can Jael really claim victory over the Lord or over, over uh, Sisera because it's the Lord who accomplishes his deliverance. He, just as in verse 15, it was the Lord who routed Sisera's army. So here we're told in verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of, of Canaan. Even Jael's death blow was God's work, which is good to remember because Jael often comes under, under criticism for her role in the story as if she was too conniving or somehow betrayed her hospitality. Uh, this was God's judgment against Sisera and Jabin. And Jael is celebrated for the role she plays in the song in chapter five. God's the one who gets the glory. And, and therein, I think, lies a fourth question for us to ask in this story. A final question. Am I okay serving God even when I don't get the credit? Am I okay serving God even when I don't get the credit, even when the glory goes to someone else? What Deborah said to Barak in verse 9 is something that the Lord says to all of us. The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. It's God who deserves and who gets the glory. Uh, as one author states, this is a necessary reminder for us. It's Yahweh who brings victory, and we should not care which human instrument seems to shine the most therein. There's always a temptation uh, to turn ministry into competition. Uh, or to use serving the Lord as a means of self-advancement. Uh, even amid the coronavirus, there's this subtle pressure that we've got to be the church that comes up with the really creative and meaningful ways to respond. But for whose glory? For whose glory? I mean, we need to trust God and obey and step out with faith. But are we willing to celebrate what God does to advance his gospel through other people and other churches uh, when, when the spotlight doesn't shine back on us? I hope the answer to that is yes. Because again, at the end of the day, just as there's only one hero in the book of Judges, so there's only one hero in all of human history, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who gets the glory. And he's the one who promises to be with us even to, with us to accomplish his purposes, even in unexpected ways. And whether we're talking about a woman putting a nail through the head of a tyrant or about a king who allows sinful people to nail him to a cross. I mean, talk about unexpected. Who would have thought that the climax of human history would be the Roman execution of a Jewish peasant. I mean, nobody saw that coming, right? Unless you were tuned into the prophets. Then you might have figured it out. But God accomplishes his purposes. And because he accomplished his purpose through Christ, because that happened, we have hope even in the midst of chaos. Because we have Jesus, who is God with us. And it's his presence that makes all of the difference. The presence of God with us to deliver us and to strengthen us to obey 
even when it's hard, even when we can't see what the future holds. We have a God who is with us to accomplish his purposes. And so let's trust him in the midst of our unforeseen circumstances. Let's trust God to accomplish his purpose. Let's expect him to do the unexpected, to accomplish his will. These are unpredictable times, but what an opportunity to see God work in unexpected ways. That, let's, let's pray and ask him to do that in and through us. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do, we ask you to be with us as you promised to be in your word, as you were with uh, Barak and Deborah. Lord, would you be with us to trust you, to see you at work, to see you uh, conquer your, uh, to accomplish your purposes for your glory. And Lord, would we be willing servants to that end? Would we be willing servants who trust you and follow you, who lean on one another, who listen to the truth of your word spoken on the lips of our friends and family to trust you together, to see you at work. And may we be faithful to your call in these unexpected times. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.